tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. There's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hello, here we are, and I just got to start out by by saying I am utterly flummoxed by the readings today. The letter to the Romans is not getting simpler, and we'll talk about it. And I I don't know. It's 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 a tough letter, but well, he could have just written simpler letters like about the weather and. Well, he was doing this weekend, but no, Paul had, never mind, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let us do it. Let us open the big book on the coffee table um, and launch into this. We're in Romans, the seventh chapter, the 18th to the 25th verses. And there's nice stuff in here. But... This is a, this is a, oh gosh, how to say this? I think it is a great mistake to read the scriptures out of a context. You know, we've been talking about this. Paul seems to talk about a universal salvation. When he talks about, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. As if this was an automatic thing. But I think if you put it in this context, and again, I'm going to share the context with you. The Christian community of Rome had been expelled from Rome about 50 AD because apparently the Jewish community of which the Christians were part were rioting over a certain Christus, which probably was the Messiah. And they were expelled from Rome and Saints Priscilla and Aquila went to Corinth, where they happened to was it Corinth? I think yeah, Corinth, where they happened to meet Paul, and uh, Paul learned the situation. And my theory is that as the as the Jews and the Christians began to go back to Rome under Nero after Claudius died, I think Paul wrote a letter about can't we all just get along? How how can it be that? A person can be a follower of Christ, but not an observer of the law of Moses. 
And that's why you get all this kind of confusing stuff when you take it out of context. Um, that, that the purpose of his letter, this is, again, just my theory, but I, I think it's a valid point. The purpose of his letter is, that's the salt shaker, purpose of this letter it, it can only be understood in its historical context. And then you can extrapolate the biblical principles that come from it. But you got to understand, at least try to understand what's going on. That's my theory. And that's kind of iffy. It's a little, a little difficult. But when you begin to understand that the Roman Empire was about 10% Jewish, it was a large population. Um, in our world, the Jews are not a large population compared to the rest of the population. I think are there 12 million uh, Jews in, in a world of billions? Well, the Roman Empire was about 70 million people, and 7 to 10 million of them were Jews, uh, the great bulk of them probably living in the Holy Land, but they, they were scattered through the, the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire uh, and and places farther abroad. At that time, there were Jewish colonies in India. There were Jewish colonies in, in southern Arabia, uh, in Yemen, uh, down the coast of Africa. So they were scattered. Uh, and the community in Rome was, was, there were a lot of Greeks in the, in the Jewish community of Rome, Greeks who enjoyed the synagogue. They, they went, remember the synagogue wasn't part of Old Testament religion. The synagogue didn't happen until the, the centuries immediately before Christ. In the whole Old Testament, you're never going to hear about a synagogue. It's an, it, you'll hear about them in the New Testament, but not in the Old Testament. It was the synagogue was a way to be an Israelite without a temple because they were too far from the temple. The religion of Israel was a religion practiced in the home and in the temple, the, the temple in Jerusalem. The synagogue was a development uh, from around the time of Christ. All that said, that's its context. And there were lots of Greeks who, who were involved in the synagogue because the, the religion of the Jews was a reasonable religion, one God, a moral code. It was so much more reasonable than the, the, the mythologies of the Greeks and Romans. Uh, so Greek speakers, Latin speakers would go to synagogue. They wouldn't go all the way. They wouldn't be circumcised. They wouldn't obey the dietary laws. But they were very interested in the moral and spiritual uh, beauty of the religion of Israel. All right, that said, this guy comes along, or Paul, and he says, yeah, you can be an Israelite. You can be fully grafted into Israel and still eat pork and not be circumcised. And the Pharisees are saying, what? Well, this was a problem. So Paul is writing a letter. This is, my, again, my theory. Sorry to put it again, because I, I just, I can't, uh, I can't unfold this letter for myself. Uh, yes, there's a salt shaker, very wise. Uh, I can't unfold this letter for myself without its context. And it's a very complex letter. Paul is trying to reason with Jewish people who are skilled at, at, at this Talmudic reasoning, this milking every word in the scriptures for its meaning. And this, this, this process of thought that, uh, that Paul, which Paul was an expert, is not easy for us. So now let's plunge the letter. I know that good does not dwell in me that is in my flesh. Well, what, what do you mean? So good does dwell in the part of you that isn't your flesh? 
we believe as as Catholics, and I think Paul is saying this, that the sin of Adam and Eve did not completely obliterate the image of God in humanity. Uh, for instance, John Calvin, the Reformation, taught that that uh, man was totally dep- uh, depraved. He was completely deprived of the image of God by the sin of Adam and Eve. We say, no, the image is still there, obscured by sin and sickness and all those other things. So St. Paul is saying, it's in my flesh that the sin of Adam and Eve is most apparent. Um, and this is kind of an odd translation. The willing is ready at hand, but the doing the good is not. No, what it says in, in the text is that um, essentially I want to do the good. Uh, uh, the willingness to do good is right there, but the actual doing of the good is not. I do not do the good I want, but I do the evil that I do not want. <sighs> Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, when I read that and you read that, we think, so then I'm not to blame for sin because it's not me doing it. I don't think St. Paul is saying that. I don't think he would have thought of it. But he's saying that that my flesh is so tied up with sin that uh, that uh, the, the, the me, the, the, the part of me that reflects God is... is is forced in a sense because it's yoked to the flesh to do things that it doesn't want to do. Uh, but my flesh really is me. So when my flesh wants something, I'm wanting it. At least that's how I read it. So I discover the principle that when I want to do the right, evil is at hand. For I take delight in the law of God, my inner self. But I see in my members another principle at war with the law of my mind, taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members miserable one that I am. I think all of us can understand that in a basic way that, that, you know, I always want to do good stuff, but I don't do it. You know, I'm going to clean the garage. Well, maybe tomorrow. I mean, the the simplest things that I, I see are good. I, I don't do them. Well, uh, that's what St. Paul is saying here. And uh, oh, good grief. I think to understand this, we're going to have to go to the beginning of the chapter in a way. Well, who will deliver me um, from this mortal body? In other words, this this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Now, he's talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter, Romans, the seventh chapter. This is so obscure. Are you unaware, brothers, that the law has jurisdiction over one as long as one lives? A married woman is bound by law to her living husband, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law in respect to her husband. Consequently, while her husband is alive, she will be called an adulteress if she consorts with another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and she's not an adulteress if she consorts with another man. In the same way, brothers, you were also put to death. You you also were put to death to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another to the one who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. <sighs> what does that mean? I don't pretend to really know myself. I mean, this is this beginning of the cha- seventh chapter of the letter of the Romans is, is extremely complex. When we were in the flesh, our sinful passions awakened by the law. Well, uh, 
worked in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, dead to what held us captive, so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit, not under the obsolete letter. (sighs) What can we say then? Law is sin? Of course not. Yet I didn't know sin except through the law. I did not know what it is to covet except that the law said you shall not covet. Now he's talking about the Ten Commandments. He also seems to say in the letter of the Romans, in the beginning of the letter, that we have a natural law that that he talks about. In verse 9, he says, I once lived outside the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive. Paul was a Jew, and he was from the first day of his life a Jew. He was never outside the law. So what can he be saying? I once lived outside the law. I think he's generalizing. For, for for all of us, then I died, and the commandment that was for life turned out to be death for me. Huh? Sin seizing an opportunity. To, this is tough stuff. I, I'm not. I'm not gonna say, oh, it's easy, and I understand it. I don't. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. I think that what Saint Paul is saying is that. By baptism into Christ, you you died to the law. That that this idea of a, a legal covenant only lasts as long as the covenanters are alive. That that's why he talks about marriage in the beginning. And here, I believe he is talking about baptism. That because. I was baptized. I became part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. So I am capable of a new covenant. Whether I am Jewish or Greek, I'm capable of entering into a new covenant. And I am not bound by the covenant of Moses because I died. I died when I was baptized. I think that's what he's driving at here. But... You know, if if anybody has a better answer, I'd love to know it. But let's let's not let's not quibble over this. <laughs> let's go to the gospel, which I think is probably a, a little more available. Okay, Luke twelve fifty four to fifty nine. Jesus said to the crowds, "When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say immediately it's going to rain, and so it does." You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky? Why don't you know how to interpret the, the present time? Judge for yourselves what is right. If you if you are to go with your opponent before a magistrate, make an effort to settle the matter on the way. Now, a lot of people use this as a kind of proof text for purgatory, and I, I, I don't think that that's inappropriate, but I don't know that that's what Jesus is talking about. I think the, the best proof text for, for purgatory is uh, uh, the sin against the spirit, that there are some sins that cannot be forgiven in the present age or the age to come. In other words, that there is such a thing as post-death forgiveness of sin uh, and, and the healing that comes from Christ. And I, I, purgatory is, I think, a very biblical and a very beautiful doctrine, but that's another matter. Well, uh, make an effort to settle on the way. Your opponent will turn you over to the judge. The judge will hand you over to the constable, and the constable will throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not be released until you paid the last penny. This is this to me, when we apply it to purgatory, is kind of interesting because how could a person in jail pay his fine? Where would he earn the money to pay his fine in jail? His family would pay it. 
when a, a person was taken in slavery, his family would redeem him. In other words, buy him back. That that this this idea of uh, of uh, being part of a family was very strong in the ancient world in a way that well we neglected. So I think when we think about purgatory, and of course, uh, don't forget the Holy Souls Novena that we're doing, and. Uh, uh, go to the, what is the what is the reference? Uh, uh, it's uh, relevantradio.com slash souls. I think go to relevantradio.com slash souls and 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 join in that because I think it it's a very wonderful thing to pray for those who've gone before and a very real thing that we're their family and we are helping them to pay the last penny uh, because. Uh, so, so I, I think that this this can kind of poetically be applied to uh, to purgatory, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think he's talking about the the political situation of 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 his times that that the unrest in the Holy Land. Romans hated unrest. They you could do just about anything provided you did it quietly and didn't disturb the public order. The Romans didn't want those disruptions. They wanted the taxes paid and and no rioting. You could do pretty much what you wanted. The Roman Empire provided you obeyed the basic laws and did not cause a, a political disruption. Well, people were rioting all the time, especially uh, the, the Jews. They, they very much wanted their freedom. Uh, because they were monotheists and the Romans were these idolaters and, you know, they, they, they were unclean. So this was a big deal. Um, Jesus was saying, you don't see what's coming. Now, we're in the same position. It just amazes me how we can pretend that, that uh, I, I shared that uh, idea about the, the meeting at, uh, in the Diocese of St. Dymphna of North Vermont, where they were, the committee was was at the point of shedding blood over whether it was to be uh, the harvest mass or the homecoming mass, and we are in incredible chaos in the world and in the church. Quite frankly, um, we are at a point of huge change, and we can't neglect that. You know, again, I I just um, you know, oh gosh, well I'm going to go off on a tangent here. Why not? Um, Christmas is coming. And of course, I think Christmas is on a Monday. And that means that there will be in these parishes that have one priest and three churches together, there will be 10 masses in two days. And that's crazy. Well, you got to have, I, I remember, uh, you know, if you look in the Missal, uh, it doesn't say mass at midnight. It says mass at night. And I would have to be up at 8 a.m. to say a Mass when I was a pastor. And uh, the Midnight Mass, that meant I could get about five hours of sleep. There's a saying that the priesthood is a wonderful life if you don't mind working weekends and hating Christmas. Oh, Father, you shouldn't say that. I'm being honest with you. Christmas was agony because you just... I remember there was one guy, really active in the parish, a good, good guy, good friend, actually, and when I said, we're going to have the, the, the mass during the night at 10. And, uh, uh, Father, you're not having the midnight mass. What, you mean you're not, you can't, you're not going to have mass at midnight? I said, no, I'm not. 
uh, did you go last year? No. Were you going to go this year? No. But you got to have it. You know, I, I just think we need to look at how we do the parish. I, as I said, I love the parish priesthood, and I think the parish is the essential structure these past thousand years or so for the sharing and nurturing of the faith. But we are kind of trashing it because we, we can't read the times. That we are about to change greatly. The church in 20 years will be a very different thing than it is now. Um, and I think that we need to very prayerfully and very hopefully ask the Lord what he wants us to do. And, you know, more is not always better. I, I, I don't mean to keep beating this drum, but I think it's a drum that needs to be beaten, especially uh, in the light of today's readings. Can't you read the signs of the times that for us to keep all the pie plates spinning is not uh, the way to do it, I think. But for us to prayerfully and reasonably consider how can we best sustain the essential communities of the faith, the parishes. We need to really pray and need to think about it because Jesus, that's what he's saying. Can't you read the signs of the times? At least that's what occurs to me with this. Sorry about that. Um, And if anybody understands the letter to the Romans, I'd love to know it. All right. That said, let us go to a break. We'll come back with with, uh, letters, which (laughs) I think are probably a little more comprehensible. And... uh, the phones are open at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Sorry to whine at you, but, well, it's, it's kind of a, a gloomy day, and I'm whiny. Today, we'd like to thank Deborah, who's listening in California for donating her 1986 Volkswagen Jetta. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Heading back to the hills and home, this old country never more to roam, the traveling line. That was just specially curated for you, Father. That's oh, that's great. That's great. This is for the past few months. I have been traveling on now for Jesus, another song. But uh, I, I, I now am I'm back in the hills of Joe Davis County. So, all right, let's let's move along here. Oh, yeah. Somehow I'm I'm trying to open stuff and and it's not opening, but that's all right. Okay. Do you well, ever have deja I, vu, I Mrs. Some, Lancaster? Uh, yeah, basically. Well, I can't open those, so I'll try to open these. Let's see. Good grief! No, I, there's a pop-up blocker that's blocking opening um, some mail. I was people called in with questions, and they were sent to me and. I can't open them. But so I won't open them. I'll just go to this computer number two. All right. Um, okay, this is a fun one. Oh, this is going to get me whining. All right. Um, I know this is from, does this person want to be anonymous? Let me check. No, this is from Don. I know the priests and religious orders have evolved poverty, so they generally cannot have money. <clears throat> 
Would a member of an order be able to raise money to support an indigent parent, even with the vow of poverty? It would seem odd to me if the parent were just out of luck because of the vow. I ask because I've been corresponding with someone who presents himself as a priest in an order that has a sick and elderly father. He's in a poor country. You know, I don't know if I, I answered this letter already. I think I may have, but be very wary when when people, um, when the clergy, um, you know, uh, come at you for cash. <laughs> I know I'm a clergyman, uh, but... I would I would say I need information on your order uh, before I help you. Uh, so Don, I would I would be very careful of that. Um, the the um, uh, there's a saying there there's some non biblical sayings of Jesus that come down to us from Gnostic Gospels that are probably genuine sayings of Jesus, but they were not incorporated in the scripture, then hence they are not considered inspired. But there's a saying of Jesus, supposedly, let your alms sweat in your hand till you know him to whom you give. That's kind of wise. You know, um, that sometimes I know in my life, I've, I've, uh, you know, pe- people are always come and knocking on rectory doors for money. And, uh, you know, I, I've sometimes if, if the story was good enough, I, I, I gave, but, um, I think there are times when I actually enabled people to continue to to live uh, an, an inappropriate life. I particularly think of one one young man who uh, was a drug dealer who managed to uh, to fool quite a number of people out of money. It just enabled him to keep up his his life uh, of of crime and sin. So you got to be careful with it. So I would I would say. This guy, you need to know about his religious order and and vet him thoroughly. If uh, if you are thinking of uh, uh, of doing that, all right. Let's see here. All right, let me let me get this. This is uh, um, kind of uh, uh, this is a very obscure long letter about deaths in the U.S. and all sorts of hemorrhagic fever. And the trick to getting me to actually focus on a letter is make it short because, well, I don't have much of an attention span. Okay. Seriously. All right. Um, Now you have to forgive me. This is from Khalil. Uh, My message was about something I heard a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not sure if it was your show or the Patrick Madrid show. Okay. Talking point about being Joseph, whether he's a virgin or had other kids, and I, I this probably was me. I said the Western Church believes in the virginity of Jesus. Well, this fellow says he's a Maronite, which is an Eastern Eastern Rite Catholic, uh, uh, Lebanese, and uh, he says that they they thoroughly believe in the in the perpetual virginity of Joseph. So these traditions come from long ago, and uh, um, uh, it's. My answer, my my real answer is, well, God willing, I get to heaven, I'll ask. <laughs> These are not matters that, that are essential to the faith. So uh, I think that we need to, to be aware of that. Let's see here. Okay. I want to do penance and have collected an abundant amount of ashes, but I can't find sackcloth. Not even Amazon has it. What is sackcloth? It's burlap. That's what sackcloth is. You can go to any 
store and get burlap. But I don't know that I'm recommending sackcloth and ashes. Um, there are other ways to do penance, such as Jesus says, give alms. <laughs> That's the best form of penance. I'm not going to wreck. I'm not, I'm not making this letter up, friends. This is sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is just burlap. I suppose if you want, whatever. All right, let's go back to this. Let's see here. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm from northern Vermont most of my life and have never heard of St. Dymphna. <sighs> This is, this is, I'm trying to give anonymity to the church about which I'm speaking. Because you see, I could say, well, the diocese A, B, or C is going through this. But essentially, most of the dioceses in, 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 in uh, America uh, and in Europe are going through this. So I didn't want to single out a single diocese. But I had stats about a diocese. And so there is no diocese of St. Dymphna. There is no state of northern Vermont. So I hope that clarifies it. All right, moving along. Okay, moving along. Where was I? Let's see here. Okay, moving along. This is, um, I must take ex exception uh, to you, to your view that, that the atonement of Christ was applied to Mary's conception because both of these events took place in successive moments in time. And therefore, it would be an irrational application of backwards causation. True, the Father applied the atoning death of Christ to the Old Testament saints, but not until he led captivity captive after his crucifixion. If you apply the argument that to God time doesn't exist, then you open a Pandora's box for anyone's theology, regardless of how it violates the laws of reason. I found most Catholic theology to be reasonable, not violating the laws of logic, except for this explanation of the Immaculate Conception. Despite God's existence outside of time, even he has bound himself to reason and logic. Uh, if not, heck, any theology can be justified. Well, that's a fascinating letter. Um, have you not read in the scripture, in the book of Isaiah, as high as the sky is above the earth, so is my way above yours. My way is not your way, the Lord says. In other words, what seems logical to us may not be as logical as we think. And we talk in the Catholic Church about prevenient grace. That's, that is the term prevenient grace. In other words, grace that came beforehand. And the idea that God borrowed ahead of time from the eternal and timeless act of atonement. If he could do it for the saints, the Old Testament saints, he could certainly do it for the Blessed Mother. So... I, I, I don't understand why, why uh, 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 John, why you would so uh, be so opposed to that idea, which is a very traditional Catholic idea. And I think it, it makes great sense that remember God has this problem, as I always tell you, he thinks he's God. All right. With that said, let's take a break. We'll come back with a word of the day and, uh, Again, if anybody understands the letter of the Romans, I am really interested in hearing it. If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com slash forester.
I remember this from an ordination. This was a, uh, this was a liturgical song at an ordination back when I was young. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Moon River was sung at an ordination. Of course, most of that class. Never mind. Let's go to the word of the day, which I think is a fun one. I am in a mood. You know, I was talking to the voice in my head uh, during the break. And, you know, well, what do the commentaries say? Well, the commentaries are all kind of about, uh, at least the ones I've read, are all about the uh, um, uh, the Renaissance or the Reformation argument about grace and works and all that sort of thing. Uh, what I really want to figure out is why Paul wrote this letter and what he meant to say to this community in Rome that was just returning from having been exiled. Jews had been kicked out of Rome and the Christians with them by Claudius the emperor in 50 AD. And they're coming back in. And why did Paul write this letter? What was he trying to say to them? And, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I don't see many commentaries or, or hear many, many scholars try to locate, uh, these things in the political and ethnic context of the time. They look at them as these timeless principles, which they are. They have, there are, there are timeless principles throughout the scripture, but there's a specific political and social sociological context in which this was written. And uh, it's, it's, I don't know. That's just kind of important to me. And I, I'm, I'm, I would like to say, oh, I understand it all. It's, it's, trust me. But I find the letter to the Romans mystifying in spots. And there's something that, that I'm not getting. <laughs> I, I'm hoping they'll find another Dead Sea Scroll that will, oh, that's what Paul was talking about, as they did works of the law. That, that it's very clear when St. Paul said we're not saved by works, he, he, is saying we're not saved by the ritual prescriptions of the law of Moses, which makes perfect sense, but we still have to do good works. Good works, the works that God has set aside for us to do, uh, are very integral to our salvation. Because, you see, I can say I believe, but I'm not going to obey. If I don't obey, I I can't believe. You don't just believe uh, in your head, but you believe in your head, your heart, your hands, your feet. In other words, if I say one thing, as St. Paul is saying, <laughs> I want to do the good, but I don't do it, well, then I'm not believing. So uh, I, I'm going to ponder this, uh, and I've been pond I've actually pondered it most of my life, and I would love to really understand it. So I'm being honest with you that, that um, well, let's go to, we, we heard the gong already. This is, I love this, it's a great word. About this, I'm sure. I mean, got the word of the day. At the end of the reading, um, uh, uh, Romans 7, 18, 25, the first section. Miserable, or maybe there's 24. Miserable, one that I am, who will deliver me from this mortal body? You see, I have a lot more in common with St. Paul than you'd think. I complain a lot. Miserable, one that I am. Well, that's a great word in Greek. It is talaiporos, which literally means burdened down to the point that I have calluses. That's what it means. It means wretched, afflicted, but it is from the word meaning to bear, to undergo. And then poros is a callus. So in other words, I'm so burdened down, I got blisters. Uh, 
that's what this means. I think it's a great word. You know, wretched man that I am. It is not wretched. It's like bruised and blistered man that I am. I think it's a great word. And I always enjoy when when St. Paul complains. It makes me love him all the more. All right, let's go to phone calls. Ahoy! And we have lots of lines open at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149, which is our Catholic Order of Foresters toll-free line. Let's go to Mary, who's calling in from Monterey, California, a beautiful city with a wonderful fish museum. What can I do for you, Mary? Well, you said that if um, if you'd love to hear from somebody that understands a little bit, uh, Paul to the <laughs> Romans, and it would yes, seem yes. like Paul was addressing uh, the things of the Spirit, which are a complete contradiction to the things of the body. Correct. Yeah, I, yeah, I can go with that. I, I can. I, I don't know about complete contradiction, but it, certainly different. He talks about there's no good in me that is in my flesh. So he's clearly differentiating uh, uh, the flesh from, the from, right from order, his inner, right from his inner self. Of, yeah, yeah. It, so, in other words, the right order would be the things of the spirit, which the world contradicts. Jesus said, "We're not of the world," right? And so yeah, we're in it, the, but not of it. The, yeah, right. So the things that we're inclined to do come from where, you know, if even if you don't believe in the Genesis narrative, you would see a man, Adam, who mm-hmm. uh, God the Father looks at and says, oh, I'm going to give you bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, this woman who he's just over the moon for. But she's the one that the devil notices and says, oh. Look at Adam. He's Hmm. all absorbed in God. He's got his head up, and, you know, how can I distract him? Ah, I'll get to him through the woman. So what does the woman do? She goes and she takes, you know, whatever it is she partakes of, because what did she do? She conceived desire, and she didn't Hmm. pause and have that, that, uh, Hmm. you know, she, in other words, God the Father said, don't touch it. And what if... If, if you read the seventh chapter from the beginning, um, this, and you, you, this, you bring up something that is interesting, and I will reread it thinking about Adam and Eve, because the seventh chapter does start with a discussion of marriage and, and, uh, and adultery. I mean, I've never heard anyone preach about that, those verses from the letter to the Romans, that, that the law... Uh, applies only till one of the spouses is dead. It does begin with that relationship between man and woman. I, I'm going to have to reread it, uh, thinking about what you're saying about Adam and Eve, that that, uh, that the law conceived desire. I mean, this is a mystifying thing to me, that St. Paul says that without the law, sin has no power. That's interesting. It seems very legalistic to me, and I, I, I'm not sure how that fits in. But it's it's fascinating. Uh, but go on, go on, Mary. Any anything else you want to say about that? Uh, if you think about the fact that um, before the law of Moses, those people couldn't sin. Think about Cain and Abel. Cain wasn't cursed; he was allowed to live because he didn't recognize that the blood he shed. He did not recognize that the blood he shed was going to cry out to him. He didn't know that. Hmm. 
Hmm. Well, yeah, it's interesting, though. St. Paul, at the beginning of the letter of the Romans, does talk about conscience, the law of conscience, that we all have the law built in. And and he seems to be, in, in chapter 7, he seems to be contradicting what he says in the beginning of the letter. So it's 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 just a fascinating quandary. And I have a, I just have a feeling that there's a contextual key that I'm not getting. So well, I will have to contemplate these things. It's a very interesting thing. I will reread that section in Genesis and then reread those sections in St. Paul's Letter of the Romans. And if I have an aha experience, Mary, you'll you'll hear it. So thanks for the thanks for the help on that. And again, I, I just um this letter is so important in the history of Christianity um, that I, I think it deserves uh, our real attention. So, again, thanks for calling in, Mary. God bless you. Let's go to Rose, who's calling from Chicago, Illinois. Rose, what can I do yes, for uh, you? Yes, thank you for taking yes. my call, Father. Father, you know, I know the Bible has been, you know, um, translated so many ways since St. Jerome. And, yes. um, yeah, and um, the name of Jesus wasn't, I mean, when the Blessed Mother named him, she, or St. Joseph named him, she, he, called, he called him Yeshua. Mm-hmm. And yes. Ma- Mary's name was Miriam. But during the process of maybe all the translations, is that how we got the name Jesus and Mary? Um, well, not how through did the translations. And not through the translations, through ling- not through the translations, but through linguistic uh, linguistic problems that that certain people can't say um, uh, they just can't say certain sounds. Like it's fascinating if you speak to someone uh, a Spanish speaker, a native Spanish speaker, um, and you're talking to them in English, and they may be completely fluent in English. Chances are they're going to say, "Yes, the Holy Spirit." No, it's just spirit. That's what I said, Spirit. No, no, you said Espirit. No, I said Espirit. <laughs> it's so funny when you do that, uh, because uh, that that native Spanish speaker can't even hear that he or she is adding an E. And then there's German, the language of romance. A German R is like a growl from the back of the throat. Richard, Richard, you know? It's not a rolled R, it's R. And, and uh, um, you know... The American are eludes people. You know, there are different sounds that can't be made. So this is how it happened with Jesus. Hebrew, it's Yehoshua. In Aramaic, it's Yeshua. But the short form of Yeshua, it really means Joshua. That's how we say it in English. But Yeshua, Yeshua became Yeshu. St. Clement of Alexandria said that's what they called Jesus. And he wrote around, oh, I want to say 185 AD in Egypt. His name was Yeshu. Now, there's a problem. Because Greek and Latin have no sh. There's no sh. So they couldn't say Yeshu. They'd have to say Yesu. And you got to end a Greek or a Latin noun like that with an S. So it had to be Yesus. <laughs> and that became Jesus. You see, it went from Yehoshua to Yeshua in Aramaic to Yeshu, which was the short form. In other words, at the name of Josh, every knee must bend. Yeshu, which became Yesu, became Jesus. Does that explain Jesus? Um, a little bit. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, I mean, uh, why don't we use what originally what the Blessed Mother called him? Well, because, you see, we, we uh, our roots are mm-hmm. Roman. And so we use the Roman version of the name Yeshu. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it's not that different, difficult. Now, now the name Mary, uh, I think that that probably comes into uh, uh, Greek. Um, uh, hmm. I'm trying to think. No, it's Maria in Greek. Uh, there was a common, not Miriam, but Maria. Uh, my, Maria. Oh gosh, I have. Let me. I, let me look it up. In I gotta look it up in Greek. Okay. Okay, but I'm sure it's Maria. Let me see. Virgin called. Okay. Oh, that's the wait music. Okay. Okay. All right. I found it. I found it. You can mm-hmm. stop playing mm-hmm. the music. All right. Click on the Greek button, and it's uh, the name was uh, was was uh, Mariam in uh, Mariam. Uh, uh, Mariam. And, Mariam. Uh, uh, Mariam in Greek, mm-hmm. and so which is closer to the Aramaic, but by the time it came to to Rome. They they don't end. You see, if you end a word in an M, especially a word that ends in A, that means it's the direct object of the verb, and that would have confused the Romans greatly. So they shorted it from Mariam to Maria, Maria, and that's what we've inherited from the Romans. So we can go back to calling them Yeshua and Mariam if you want, but, you know, people will wonder who you're talking about. You know, as the saying goes from Shakespeare, a rose by another name would, would smell as sweet. So... You know, you can do it, but people will look at you cross-eyed. So no, yeah. that's a, that, no, I would do it that's, privately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, no. You're allowed to do that privately. But the, yeah. the, that's the genesis from, from the Hebrew Yehoshua to the Aramaic Yeshua to the short mm-hmm. form in Aramaic Yeshu to the Greek and Roman form Jesus. And Mayam mm-hmm. uh, in Greek and... Uh, 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 and then it simply became Maria. Maria in, yeah, it just seems like so, it just has such a reverence about it when you, you know, say that. You know, I don't know for, for me, some people but, it does, and yeah. some well for you, yeah. And you yeah. know, you yeah. can do that. Why not? All right. Well, good. I, it's a great question. So there you go. I'm going to have to look at. Uh, it's more interesting how how Mariam in Aramaic became Maria in Latin. I'll have to look at that a little more, but. Interesting. Well, thanks for calling in. God bless you. And let us go to Stephen from Damascus, Arkansas. Stephen, what can I do for you? I'm um, trying to get an explanation for the meaning of Exodus 13, verse 13. Yes. For my stepson, I want to sound smart, so I called you to get the answer. <laughs> um, Good luck with that. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, it, it talks about uh, ransoming and redeeming and killing the first offspring of the, uh, it's, you know, and so I just kind of want to get some clarification. All right. All right. Well, I will try to clarify. Let me pull that up. Exodus 13. Is it uh, Exodus 13? What is the, what is the citation? Exodus 13. Uh, but what's the chapter? Uh, 13, Uh, 13. 13. Okay. All right. Um, through 15. All right. Okay. Come on. Oh, there's the music again, which is always played when I can't figure out where I am. Okay. I just want to make sure I am not making this up. All right. I got it. I got it. All right. Um, we read that uh, you are to present to the Lord the firstborn male of every womb. 
Now, remember good old Pharaoh who said uh, that he wanted to kill all the male children of, of the Israelites. And we read that Pharaoh had uh, uh, attacked God's firstborn, uh, which was Israel. That was, that was, uh, you can hear me click it away again. Israel, okay, I want to find that exact verse for you so you sound smart. Okay, okay. This is Exodus 4.22. Israel is my firstborn son. And that that in the attempt to destroy Israel by killing all of the the baby boys, um, Pharaoh pronounced his own doom that what goes around comes around. As you measure out, it's measured back to you. So as a consequence, God slew the firstborn of Egypt. That's what Pharaoh had asked for by, by trying to bring about the death of, of Israel. You follow? So yes. the firstborn belonged to God because God had rescued the firstborn. So they were his. And right, and so when you had, when you ransom the firstborn, then you are yes, you bought him back from God in a sense. And that it was an offering it makes of it Thanksgiving. Like, it makes it what? seem like that you are ransoming your first. You are sacrificing your firstborn. Does exactly, you are. And instead of sacrificing your firstborn, you sacrifice a couple turtle doves. God will say the firstborn belongs to me, but I want you to kill him. Just give me a couple turtle doves. That's exactly what's going on. Read that on. loosely. It doesn't. You kind of get confused, and my, it kind of sounds like it's saying it's talking about ransoming the firstborn of the animals, and then it says, "And so you redeem your son too." Yeah, yeah. Well, firstborn across across the board uh, that that um, that Pharaoh tried to destroy God's firstborn, which was Israel, and so the result was that the firstborn of Egypt was destroyed, and Israel was spared. But God, in sparing Israel, he came to own them. And so you bought back, you ransomed uh, what, what belonged to God. That, that's exactly what's going on. And we don't think that way, but that was the way they thought, and that's what God did. Does that help a little? Oh, I hope I mean, it helps a little. Are you ransoming like you would a turtle dove, the firstborn? Yeah, yeah. The, the offering of the poor was two turtle doves. It was, you know, it was a deal. God gave you a good deal. Speaking of good deals, Drew is coming up. Don't go anywhere. I'm sure he'll be much more precise than I was today.